Today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. Jesus curses a fig tree and clears the temple courts. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who who were bullying and selling there, sorry, those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, Forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been going through the difficult passages in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And because, once again, today's passage is slightly difficult. It would be great if you could have your Bibles out. And as we turn to it, we'll refer to different sections. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles at the back um, that you can just um, pick uh, pick up. But as we come to this text, I should we pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that we can come to you in prayer, in faith. We thank you that all that is required for us us to be accepted is faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we come to you, your presence through Christ uh, this morning, that you would speak to us and that you would shape our hearts and mind and that we may live for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All of you know the word hunger. And all all of you also know the word hunger. Anger. Yep. 
And uh, the, I don't know who coined it, but uh, recently there is a word that has been going around that perfectly describes the emotion that you feel, often feel, when you get hungry. It's hanger. <laughs> you get hangry. On the surface of it, actually today's passage about the fig tree, the curse of the fig tree, seems like the perfect case of hanger. <laughs> um, hangry. We're told that Jesus is hungry in verse 12. He went to go see the tree, but, you know, it, it was not in season, and it, it had no fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. May it never bear fruit again. May no one ever eat, from, uh, eat, from the, eat fruit from you again, verse 14. If there was any case of sort of divine abuse of power, this seems to be it. Jesus is hungry. It seems like he is uh, doing something that is completely unwarranted and irrational. Actually, what he does next is uncharacteristic as well. So if you look down, he goes to the temple courts and he drives out the people who are worshiping in the temple. Those who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of money changers and the benches of the dove sellers. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry any merchandise in and out of the temple courts. He completely disrupts the temple worship for that day. And of course, these two stories are related. The curse of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, clearing of the temple. This is another case of, classic case of Mark and Sandwich that we saw a couple weeks back. He starts with one story, he goes to another story, he comes back to that story. And these two stories are related. As you can see, it starts out with the tree, uh, the, the fig tree. And then he goes to the cleansing of the temple, clearing of the temple. And in verses 19 to 21, we return to the fig tree, the topic of fig tree again. So these are supposed to be read together as one story. So why don't we take a look at the story that is in the middle, because I think it will tell us what the fig tree thing was all about. Whatever you think about the uh, a fig tree, the clearing of the temple was not uh, an impulsive decision. We see that, if you have your Bibles open, in verse 11, he went to the temple a day before, he scanned, he looked around the temple, and he, the next day, in verse 12, he returns back to the temple. He does it intentionally. You know, some crimes are crimes of passion. It just arises uh, in a moment. You see something and you just can't control it. But this one was premeditated. He thought, he saw what he saw from the temple and he returned as a man on a mission. And people often talk about Jesus as uh, cleansing the temple, as if he is making the temple worship better, that he's washing the unclean parts so that people could worship in the temple better. But is that really what's happening? He drives out. He drives out those who were buying and selling at the courtyard. The marketplace actually was necessary in the court of the Gentiles. People sold uh, animals because if you think about it, people came to offer sacrifices. And from their homes, they couldn't bring a bull or a lamb or, or, or doves. So when they came to the temple, they needed to buy these animals. When Jesus is clearing the people who are selling and buying, what's he doing? Is he really uh, cleansing the temple, making the worship better, or is he disrupting it? Is he changing it? How can the temple sacrifice continue if you don't have an animal to sacrifice? How about the money changers? 
There they were, because Roman coins had uh, the, the images of their emperors, which is idolatrous, and they couldn't offer that money uh, for the temple. And so the money changers changed, took the secular money and changed the money into the, the, the temple coins so that people could give offering to the temple, so that the work of the temple could continue. How will the temple be supported without the money changers? You see, Jesus isn't teaching and instructing people to do the temple worship better. He's disrupting it. He's coming. He's ending it. That's what he's doing. Why? Well, he quotes from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Clearly, the temple wasn't fulfilling its purpose. The beauty of the temple worship is supposed to attract all nations, people from all nations to come and worship Yahweh God in the temple courts. But clearly, it wasn't even a a house of prayer for the Jewish people. The den of robber, that phrase comes from Jeremiah 7, 11. But this isn't just an indictment of their guilt. You have done this. Actually, there is an implicit warning and the warning of impending judgment there as well. Because in Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is actually standing on the temple grounds. God says, go to the temple grounds. And so Jeremiah goes and he prophesies in Jeremiah 7 that uh, the temple worship wasn't enough. Having the temple there wasn't enough. Uh, That their lives, the people's lives who came to the temple, their lives are filled with evil and hypocrisy. And Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 20, so Den of of Robbers is mentioned in uh, verse 11. And if you scan down to Jeremiah 7, 20, God says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on the people and the animals, on the trees of the field and crops of your land. It will be burnt and not be be quenched. What Jeremiah says is that this temple will be destroyed. You see, when Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7. He's not just saying, do things better. He's saying, actually, this place will be judged just as it was in Jeremiah's time. He's saying it didn't fulfill its function. The lives of those people who came to the temple, they weren't changed, and now it will be destroyed. And of course, in a few chapters later, in chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus prophesies exactly that, the destruction of the temple. 13.2, do you see all these great buildings, he replied. Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And this is what that fig tree episode is all about. Jesus curses the the, the tree, verse 14, and it withers from the roots, 8.20. You see, um, verse, uh, verse 20, You see, the fig tree was a visual illustration of what happened, what would happen to the temple. From afar, it looked like it was filled with life. It was bearing fruit, but actually it was just useless. It it had no fruit. It bore no fruit. Its ground was marked. Its worshippers were hypocrites. This wasn't a case of hanger. May no one ever eat from fruit, uh, fruit from you again. Was the same thing as saying, may no one worship in this temple again. 
And I wonder if you can see how dangerous what Jesus was doing was at the time. Certainly, the people react to him violently. Once again, if you look down to verse 18, the teachers of the law and the chief priests plotted to kill him. Later on, when they see him, they they question his authority. That's the next section, verse 28. By what authority are you doing this, they asked. And who gave you the authority? They're stunned that Jesus has the audacity to come to the temple and stop what had been going on for a thousand years. God says, could you think about how important... uh, how important the temple worship was and what was going on and the magnitude of what Jesus has done. God says multiple times throughout the Old Testament that he will dwell in that house forever. When Moses gives, is given the law, he is given elaborate details of how to build the tabernacle, the prototype of the temple. When it's finally built, the biblical writers devote in fine detail of how it was built and every inch of the temple. And when it was destroyed, it was mourned. And when it's finally rebuilt, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others devote a good chunk of their prophecy, building, uh, recording the rebuilding of the temple. Of course, um, it's not just the details of the physical structure. It's details of the, how people are to worship God there, how people are to approach the Holy of Holies. These are all uh, written in detail. It all shows the importance of the temple. And this book uh, somebody gave me, it has every single thing that is in the temple, and it's described in detail. This is how Jewish people regard the temple, how important everything in the temple is. And Jesus comes in and stops the temple worship and what has been going on for about a thousand years. The temple was the place where Jewish people met God. And in fact, actually, it wasn't just the Jewish people. The temple was the place, the only place where God promised to meet with people. This was the only place that God says, I will dwell in this house forever. It was the only place where sins were forgiven because sacrifices were offered at the temple. But Jesus came and disrupted that. He made it seem like he actually was, wanted to end the temple sacrifice altogether. In our preaching meeting on uh, Thursday, on Thursday morning, I, uh, the person who was preaching comes and, and we talk about uh, the passage. And I thought what Niels uh, said there was brilliant. He explained it brilliantly. He goes, he went, who goes into the White House and, and starts overturning the furniture and driving out its people? And this isn't just the place where the president lives. This is actually the place where God lives. Who has the authority to end that? Once again, Neil says, well, what if there was one hospital for the entire world? One hospital where people are healed. And actually, this, uh, th- this healing stops. This hospital is destroyed. Who has the authority to do that? And how would people react to that? Preachers often talk about Jesus wasn't just a meek and mild uh, person uh, from this passage, don't they? That how he was zealous and angry at some points. But it's not the temperament that we should focus on. It's the authority that we should focus on that should amaze us. The Jews got it. They said, by what authority are you doing this? 
by what authority can you disrupt the temple worship that has been going on for a thousand years? By what authority can you say that the worship here is now useless, that it should stop, that it is rotten from the roots? By what authority can one stop sacrifices and the prayers that have been going on? That's what should amaze us about this story. He has come to stop the temple worship, to clear out, to tell people that it is no longer necessary or wanted. The Yahweh God commanded the temple worship to begin, but he has come to end it. Jesus, in his authority, tells that temple is now useless. And if you read on to the next section, in verses 22 to 26, actually, that section, without that reference point, about the temple, this section will not make sense. It will seem strange. Jesus answers Peter, who says, the fig tree has dried. It's it's rotten from the roots. And to that, Jesus says, have faith in God. What does that mean, have faith in God? Does that mean that actually he can, uh, if you have faith, then you can dry many, many more fig trees, (laughs) right? That it doesn't seem quite fit, seem to fit. The following section about the prayer and the forgiveness of sin, uh, sins seem like a random collection of sayings, doesn't it, at this point? But I hope you'll give Mark a little bit more credit in this passage. This passage is about the, I mean, is this passage about power of faith? Actually, this is what a lot of people make this passage about, that it's about power of faith. Um, but what does it mean that I mean, it goes on to talk about prayers and it, talk, it goes on to talk about forgiveness of sins? What does it mean when he says, have faith in God? And verse uh, 22 to 26 will make much more sense if you understand that we're still on this uh, subject of temple worship. By pointing to the withered tree, Peter is saying, what will happen to all the things that happen in the temple? What will happen that now the place of prayer is now gone? What will happen to uh, the forgiveness of sins? How can people be forgiven of their sins if the temple worship stops? That's what he's saying. The fig tree has dried. What will happen to these things? You see, that's what Jesus is answering. Have faith in God. Prayers and forgiveness will still happen will still go on apart from the temple worship. The temple will be destroyed, but God will make a way. There will still be forgiveness of sins. God will still hear our prayers. That's what he's saying in this section, 22 to 26. And if you look at scan that section, the key to all of this is faith. That's what's repeated there, isn't it? In verse 22, have faith in God. Verse 23, do not doubt in your hearts and believe Once again, in verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe. You see, time will come when God will hear our prayers no matter where it is uttered, no matter what state people are in, if it's prayed in faith in Him. The time will come when no one will have to kill an animal to be forgiven of their sins. The forgiveness of sins will be offered to everyone who comes to Christ. And it will be offered to anyone then who then forgives other people's sin in response to what God has done in Christ. That's what he's saying. Have faith in God. Of course, faith is the only thing that's necessary because of what Jesus is about to do. If you look at the context of chapter 11, 
Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And people cry out, Save us, Hosanna. That's what that means. He comes riding on a donkey as a king. But then he, in order to save them as their king, he goes into the temple. He declares it useless. In the next chapter, in chapter 12, in the beginning of chapter 12, if you look, he'll tell the story of the parable of the tenant, about the tenants who would kill the, the, the son of the owner. He knows his death was coming. He entered Jerusalem for that reason, to die, to be the sacrifice that takes away people's sins. You know, if you think about, if you ask the question, how can a death of an animal take away people's sins? The answer is, it doesn't. It cannot take away your sins. But God, in his forbearance, because he knew that Jesus would come and become the true sacrifice, people who came to temple in faith, God forgave their sins. But Jesus now has come. He will be the sacrifice that, that dies to take away the people's sins. And take a look at what the Old Testament passage he quotes in the middle of the, the parable, parable of the tenant. Jesus quotes in chapter 12, um, from Psalms 118, uh, 22, 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is mar- marvelous in, in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus is not only the true sacrifice. He is the new temple. He will be rejected. In fact, he will be destroyed but God will raise him up. And in him, all people will be able to come and meet God. In him, all people will be able to come and find forgiveness of sins for them. And all that we need is then faith in Christ Jesus. This is what Peter, whether he finally fully gets it or not, was what, uh, what he was pointing to, is hinting at Rabbi. The fig, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This isn't just about the fig tree. This is about the temple worship and the seismic shift that would come in how God would relate to his people. But what does that then? What does this all have to do with us? How is it relevant to us? Well, I hope you've seen, the first thing that I think, I hope you've seen through this short series on the Gospel of Mark is... Um, is another side of Jesus. We often think of Jesus as a friend or even a helper, don't we? Someone who would come to our aid when we need a genie uh, to help us. But Jesus is our Lord. He's our King. And that is again and again what he has declared in the Gospel of Mark, that he is the, he's the bridegroom that the Jewish people had been waiting for. He is the new wine. He is our King. He is our Lord. Uh, and if you have a friend, um, if you have a friend who created the world, who saved it, who says he will recreate it, if you have a friend who is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, if you have an all-wise and loving and all-just friend, would you want that friend to be your personal assistant? Would you want your friend just as a genie who would help you to live your life your own way better? 
But this is how we treat God, don't we? Oftentimes, this is how we treat Jesus, that he's our personal assistant who will make us, who will help us to live our life our own way better. No, you want Jesus. You want to bow down before him. You want to say to him, I want to live your way because you are God. You know the world and you know my life much better. I want to, live my, I want to fit my life into your plan. Jesus is the one who came. He is Yahweh God who has ended and new st- the temple worship and began a new uh, time. Would we worship him? Would we bow down to him and give our lives over to him? And it's also amazing, once again, if we go back to what Jesus actually did. You know, we don't think about this because we don't have to kill anything in our life. But isn't it amazing that actually we can worship God without killing anything? without going through all the rituals in order to approach God, in order to be in the presence of God. You know, we sometimes think, actually, these are outdated things, that we don't think like this anymore. If we lived, um, we don't think, actually, killing an animal would take away our sin, or we need to somehow cleanse ourselves to, to go before God, that these are outdated things. But actually, this is not so outdated, isn't it? If you think about it, because I have a friend who doesn't go to church right now? And the reason, although we've been trying to tell her that this is not, shouldn't be the case, uh, the reason that she says is because her life isn't together. She thinks that she somehow needs to get her life right before God, before she goes, into, uh, she goes to church. She somehow thinks that she needs to clean herself up, offer some sort of sacrifice before she can go in the presence of God. It's there. You know, I've, we've invited, Mary and I have invited a, 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 church, a person to, to the church, and his answer of not, why he doesn't come to church is, once again, similar. He says he's not good enough. He's done too many things in the past, and he just can't. He's, he's, a, he's a lost cause, he says. You see, the instinct to cleanse ourselves, to be right before God, before we can approach God, is actually all there still there in us and it is good that it's there because god cannot be with sinful people he cannot accept us just as we are but for jesus this is what jesus has done he has cleansed us by his blood he has been the, uh, he is he, now the sacrifice that paid for our sins that opened the way for us so that we could approach god as we are. In Jesus Christ, we can meet God. We can pray to God. We can find forgiveness in God. And it's also, isn't it also amazing what Jesus has accomplished since then? A temple failed to be the house of prayer for all nations. But if you look around the church today, if you just look left and right, this is a house of prayer for all nations. This is a place where people from everywhere, wherever you go, a church is a house of prayer for all nations, people, no matter what state they are in, no matter which country they are from, they can all approach God in faith in Jesus Christ. None of us are perfect, for sure, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that God has sent through Christ, our lives are being transformed more and more into His likeness, the fruit is being born. The fig tree, the temple had withered. But Christ came. 
Christ came 2,000 years ago, and He is our Lord. We must serve Him, and then we must trust Him with our life. We must, we must trust Him and approach Him, and as we do, we will bear fruit. We will accomplish all the things that the Old Testament had looked forward to if we come in faith in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for sending your son Jesus to our life, that he became the sacrifice, he became the temple in which we can meet and approach God, approach you. And we thank you that all the prayers said in faith are heard by you. We thank you that all people who come to Christ will be forgiven. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that Christ sent to our lives, that we might, our, we might change, that we might start bearing fruit. And Lord, we pray now that you would help us to realize what you've done. You would help us to see Christ as he is. And that we, that we would come to him in faith and live our lives, all of our lives, for him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.